We're going to look at a few scriptures tonight, not as many as we normally do, but we are going to look at a few. If you want to get a head start on the first one, you can find Luke 24, Luke 24. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the Bible, and up to this point, we have talked about the doctrine of Scripture. What do we believe about the Bible? These are the things that we've been talking about. The Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is without error. It's inerrant. We've talked about the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning it's, it's clarity. The authority of the Bible, which we're going to talk about tonight on the backside of this, this uh, time together. Uh, the necessity of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Bible, the power of the Bible, the unity of the Bible. Last week, the beauty of the Bible. Tonight, we're going to pivot just a little bit. And we're not going to talk about the doctrine of Scripture in these sorts of ways, but we're going to begin to talk about something that theologians call hermeneutics. And that's just a fancy word that means how do you actually interpret the Bible. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is the canon of Scripture. What are the books that belong in the Bible? This is the roadmap for the rest of the the Wednesday nights this spring. Next week will be introduction to hermeneutics. We're going to talk about the role of the interpreter. Then we're going to talk about a few basic rules. And then the last several weeks, we're going to talk about different types of genres within the Bible. Narrative and epistle, prophecy and apocalypse, idiom, metaphor, hyperbole. And then one night uh, as we wrap up talking about parables. When we think about the canon of scripture, this is not uh, a lesson on piracy or the Civil War. This is not canon with two ends, okay? This is canon with one end. I'm a bad speller. You probably find my typos on notes and on the screen all the time. I'm a really bad speller. But we're not talking about boom canon. We're talking about one in canon. And it comes from a Greek word. Our English word canon is just pretty, pretty much lifted straight over from Greek, the Greek word kanon. And it literally describes a reed that would get pulled from a river, a long straight reed, and it would be used as some sort of measuring device. So it's sort of a a ruler or a guide. And as we're thinking about it tonight, we're talking about the measurement of the Bible. How many books do we include? Why do we not include those? And why do we include these? Uh, Essentially, it's a list, the list of books that belong in the Bible. That's how Wayne Grudem defines the term in his book, Systematic Theology. He says, the canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. Pretty straightforward. In some sense, this is where you really ought to start. We haven't done this, but it's really where you ought to start any discussion of the Bible itself by defining what it is. And we've spent all these weeks saying, well, it's clear and it's Uh, authoritative and it's necessary and it's inspired by God and all of these things, all of these adjectives we've applied to it, but we've never actually stopped to say, what is it? Why do we have these 66 books in the Bible? Why don't we have 65? Why don't we have 32? Why don't we have 86? Why do we have these 66 books In the Bible. Maybe you saw the news reports just in the last couple of weeks out of Israel that archaeologists have discovered a new bunch in a basket of Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the first time they found any new 
Dead Sea Scrolls in about 60 years. And the bottom right is some of these guys working in a, uh, a cave in the Qumran area, and that gives you an aerial shot on the top right. And then uh, there's one of the, the archaeologists, one of the curators, displaying uh, for the media some of these fragments that they found. And you look at that and you say, well, that doesn't look very impressive. That doesn't look like a Bible. But they've got all of these scraps and all of these fragments and really smart people place them out and put them together and piece them together. And they look at these and they say, that's the minor prophets. There's Nahum on this fragment. There's Zechariah on this fragment. And they're looking at these things. Part of the question we're asking tonight is, what if these people were digging around in a cave and they found the other two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth? that aren't in the Bible. Did you know that Paul wrote two other letters to the church in Corinth? They're mentioned in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible. What if somebody pops up on the news and says, huh, we got third and fourth Corinthians for you. That's not the order of where they would go. We'd have to renumber all of them, but you get the idea. What would we do? Would we say, well, I guess we have to expand the canon. Or what if somebody piped up and said, hey, we found Paul's letter to the church in Laodicea. The Bible mentions that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea, but we don't have that letter. What would we do if on the news you turned on and they said, oh, we got a new book for the Bible, Paul's letter to the church in Laodicea. That's the sort of thing that we're wrestling with tonight. Why do we have these books? Why do we have these 66? Why do we not include the Book of Mormon? For Mormons, that's part of the canon. I mean, we sort of laugh at that and we say, well, (laughs) because it's the Book of Mormon, of course, we're not gonna include it, but why not? Somebody comes along and says, we have another book that belongs to be recognized as Scripture. Why would we not include it? Why would we not include the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower publications, the magazines? In the Jehovah's Witness faith, all of those publications fall under the heading of Scripture, of authoritative, true Scripture. Why don't we include those things? Why do we limit ourselves to these books? Let me give you a sports analogy for what we're trying to do tonight, okay? It's March Madness Basketball's on TV. I like basketball. Long time ago, a guy named James Naismith wrote up some rules for basketball. They're not really the rules that we play basketball under today, but it's the basic framework for what basketball looks like. There's all sorts of rules in basketball. You can't run with the ball unless you're dribbling. You can't dribble with two hands. You can't dribble after you pick it up, right? There's all sorts of rules you can pass, different things you can do and you can't do. All those rules for basketball are what we're going to talk about in the upcoming weeks, okay? Hermeneutics. What are the rules for making sense of this book? What we're talking about tonight when we talk about the canon is what are the boundaries of the playing field, okay? You don't play basketball in a church sanctuary, This is not where the game was designed to be played. It's really not designed to be played in a grass field. That's not where it's intended to be played. You play on a court, and it has certain dimensions, and there's boundaries. And you don't get to play outside of those boundaries because the boundaries contain the game in that particular place. That's sort of what we're doing tonight. We're setting the boundaries to say, when we talk about interpreting the Bible, these are the books that we're actually talking about. Now, One disclaimer, this particular lesson is just, it's a little bit different. There's a lot of history that we're going to talk about tonight to make sense of why do we have these 66 books. I'm glad you're here to hear it, to listen. 
I'm really glad that we're sharing this with our youth and our college students because I don't want for you or especially for our young people, I don't want the first time that you hear about this debate about the canon to be from some professor who doesn't believe in the inspiration of the Bible at all. I don't want for you the first time that you hear about this debate about which books get in to be from the History Channel and to listen to some expert tell you all the things they want you to know about the formation of the canon. So it's a little bit different. It's less of a Bible study itself, although we're going to look at some scriptures together, and it's more of sort of a thinking through, why do we actually have these books? Why do we have these 39 books in the Old Testament and these 27 books in the New Testament, why don't we have any more, and how did we get these? So we're going to talk about this in three parts. We're going to talk about the Old Testament first, then we're going to talk about the Apocrypha, and then we're going to talk about the New Testament, okay? Three sections. So section one, the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures are known as the Tanakh. And if you really want to try to sound Hebrew, you can add like a breathy H at the end of that, like the Tanakh. If you're a white person, you say the Tanakh. It's okay, the Tanakh. Known as the Tanakh. Why are they known as the Tanakh? Notice the four consonant sounds in that Hebrew word. Almost every Hebrew word consists of three consonants and vowel sounds. That's the general pattern for Hebrew vocabulary. So Tanakh has a T and an N and then a KH sort of sound. That's because the first part of the Hebrew scriptures is the Torah or the Torah, It's the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, exactly like you would find it in an English Bible, right? The Old Testament divisions, that's the law. Next is the Nevi'im, and there's two eyes there, and you try to say both of them without sounding like a hillbilly. The Nevi'im, okay? That's the prophets. It's not a collection of prophets like you might think of it. Here's the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, combined together, it's just Samuel, kings combined together, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, which is all the minor prophets. You might remember a couple years ago, we did a sermon series through the minor prophets, and we titled it the 12, the book of the 12. That's because the Jews called it the book of the 12. They grouped them all together in one book. So that's the Nevi'im. The third section is the Kedavim. It's the writings And this includes Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah combined in one, and Chronicles all combined in one. The first book in the Kedavim is the book of Psalms. File this away. Sometimes that last section is just called the Psalms. And it's not necessarily just talking about the book of Psalms as we think about it. It's the first book, it's the biggest book, and sometimes all of the writings are just referred to as the Psalms. Now, this is what I need you to understand. When you pick up your Bible and you flip to this awkward page in the middle that is blank and there's New Testament here and then there's Old Testament on that side, okay? You take that Old Testament chunk in your hand. That is the exact same content as what you would find in the Tanakh. Does that make sense? It's in a different order. And some of the books are mashed together. 
And it's not exactly arranged like we would arrange it. Typically in English Bibles, we have the law first, then we have history books, then we have poetry, then we have major prophets, then we have minor prophets. That's, that's not a biblical thing. That's just a Western English thing. That's how we've grouped the, the Old Testament books. But if you go to the bookstore or you get online, you can buy a Tanakh. Okay? That's a copy of the Tanakh. And at the top, it says the Jewish Bible. That's a Christian add-on for dumb people like us that don't know what the Tanakh is. They would not call it the Christian Bible. They just call it the Tanakh. It, calling this the Christian Bible would be like me saying to you, this is the Christian Quran. You'd be like, no, it's the Bible. Right? That's the name of it. It's not the Christian version of the Quran. It's the Bible. Okay? Well, this is the Tanakh. And it's got these three divisions in it. It's got the law, it's got the prophets, and it's got the writings. All the same content. Uh, it's just arranged a little bit differently. This is what I want you to understand. The Bible that Jesus used, and I put that in quotes because that's not the term that Jesus would have used. But the Bible Jesus used is identical to what we would refer to as the Old Testament. Order is different. Some of the books are mashed together, but it's exactly the same stuff. And you get a glimpse of this, this three-part division in Luke 24. This is after the resurrection. If you look at Luke 24, verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, number one, the Torah, and the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms. You remember I told you sometimes it's just called the Psalms, the writings. All of the things written about me in those three collections of books must be fulfilled. And as English people, we're like, so there's no minor prophets in that? Or there's no poetry in that? And you understand the divisions are just different. And Jesus isn't an American, he's a Jew. And he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. And essentially he's saying everything written about me in all the different parts of the Old Testament, all the books that we have, all of these things had to be fulfilled. So this is essentially, if you want to use this term, the Bible that Jesus would have used. Grudem says this, writings subsequent to about 435 B.C. were not accepted by the Jewish people generally as having equal authority with the rest of Scripture. In the New Testament... We have no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the canon. So this is what he's saying. After about 435, people kept writing books. People wrote books. After the book of Malachi, people were writing different things. But the Jewish people, this is just pretty basic history. It's really not even debatable or deniable. They didn't view those other books that were being written as Scripture. They sort of had an idea, okay, we, we understand the parameters of what God has revealed to his people. There's the, the law, and there's the prophets, and there's the writings. And they didn't look at all these other books as if they had any sort of authority. Jesus debated a lot of stuff with the Jewish leaders. They argued about all kinds of stuff. They argued about Sabbath interpretations. They argued about the nature of God. They argued about the resurrection. They argued about all kinds of different things. They didn't really argue about this. It's because Jewish people generally understood what the scriptures were. 
it's actually why John the Baptist was such a big deal. Have you ever wondered, why were all those people going out into the middle of nowhere to listen to John the Baptist? Well, they didn't have Netflix, and they didn't have Amazon, and they didn't have basketball games to go to. Right? Maybe they were bored. Or maybe it's that there had been no prophet for 400 years, and everyone knew it. They knew it. That was just sort of common understanding. God has not spoken to his people in some 400 years. And all of a sudden, there's a crazy guy who dresses and talks and eats just like Elijah the prophet. And people think, God is finally speaking to his people again. And they're flocking out there to listen to him. So that's the Old Testament. There's really not a lot of debate about this. What did the Jews consider to be scripture? It's essentially what we have in the Old Testament. Now let's talk about the Apocrypha. The word Apocrypha literally means secret or hidden. That's what the word itself means. It was written after Malachi and before the New Testament. So you're looking at a window of time roughly mid 400s BC, 475, give or take, to about AD 30. Okay, the Apocrypha. Uh, I didn't print this on your sheet honestly, because I ran out of space and I couldn't get it all on front and back one page. So here's the apocryphal books. One and two, Estrus, Tobit, Judith. There are additions to the book of Esther, okay? And there's sort of all the way through, there's additions. Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. Jake was gonna have a pop quiz for the youth upstairs and see if they could guess which books were in the Bible or not. And he threw that one in and I said, that's a low down dirty trick because some kid's gonna vote for that as an Old Testament book and you're gonna shame them. So Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon. Sounds exciting. It's pretty good stuff. Prayer of Manasseh, which is part of Second Chronicles and First and Two, First uh, and Second Maccabees. Okay. Here's the Apocrypha, okay? I got another uh, version of it in my office. Um, some of this is poetry. Some of this is history. Some of this, to be honest with you, I could read it to you now and not tell you where it's from, and it would sound like Bible stuff to you. Does that make sense? Like if I just really wanted to be mean and give you random verses without any address or anything, I could fool a lot of you, and you could probably fool me. There's stuff in here that you read it, you're like, well, that sounds actually pretty good. There's other stuff in here you're like, well, that's interesting. I don't know about that. So just a collection of books. If you buy a Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha's in there. Okay, growing up, I used to occasionally... Uh, visit family, and we would attend Catholic Mass, and it was fascinating to me to open up the Pew Bible and to find the books that we didn't have uh, in my Bible or in our Bibles. And you can just go through and you can find them. They're listed there. So the Apocrypha. Let's start with this as a baseline. The Apocrypha was never accepted by the Jews as Scripture. Never, never, never. By the Roman Catholic Church, by Orthodox churches, yes. But by the Jews, no. It was never accepted as scripture. Additionally, Jesus and the New Testament authors never quote the Apocrypha. And some of you were here a couple of weeks ago. I showed you a graphic. We're talking about the unity of the Bible. And I showed you a graphic with all these lines the Bible referencing itself Old Testament to New Testament, New Testament to Old, Old to Old. And there's Thousands, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of quotations and allusions where the Bible refers to itself. I'm telling you, zero for the Apocrypha is not quoted as inspired scripture. It's never referred to as the writings or as the word of God in the New Testament. Now, I want to be very honest with you. When these books are being written, the apocryphal books, mid-400s B.C. up through about the life of Jesus, people read them. They were being read. People knew about them, okay? There was no Mardell or Lifeway Store or Barnes & Noble with an awkward little Christian section over in the corner or there's no Amazon you could get on and say, show me all the Christian books, Okay. But if there were, at the time, you would have gone to the Christian section, the Jewish section, the Tanakh section, whatever you want to call it, there would have been the scriptures, and then there would have been a bunch of other books, just like you go to the bookstore today. And when you go to the bookstore today, you drive over to Midland and you go to Mardell's, you say, those are the Bibles. These are the books written by people talking about the Bible. And they're all sold in the same place. They're all sold under the, the guise of Christianity. But you understand those are the scriptures. These are not the scriptures. You still read them. My goodness, I have a library full of them in my office. All kinds of stuff is not Bible at all, but it's about the Bible, and people were reading these books, but nobody thought in the moment that they were reading scripture. This would have been like uh, religious nonfiction. So you say, okay, so these books are being written, but nobody thinks there's any prophets and nobody thinks that these books are scripture. The Jews don't recognize them. Why can you buy them now as a group and why are they included in the Roman Catholic Church as scripture and why are they included in Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox? They include these books as scripture. How did that come about? This is a really long story and I'm going to try to break it down to four parts. You understand this is a terrible oversimplification. I'm just going to give you four pieces of this story. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Jewish people get sent into exile at the end of that storyline, right? God finally has enough of the nation. Israel goes first, and they don't ever come back, and then Judah gets sent into exile. And when these people get sent into exile, you find this out when they come back later, many of them just start to speak and read Greek only. It's just the language that everyone was speaking, and a lot of them forget how to read and how to speak and how to write in Hebrew. And so there was a process where they began to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And so I've just given you a sort of a screenshot here. On the left, Hebrew, okay? On the right is a Greek translation of that Hebrew. And I didn't dig into this. It's talking about uh, the men of Israel and the kingdom of David, and I can't read it well enough on the fly, but I can pick out a few things there, okay? So they're translating from Hebrew into Greek so that everyone can read it. Guess what else they translated? The Apocrypha. Right? They translated other books. People didn't just want to read the Scriptures. They wanted to read other stuff, and so they translated the Apocrypha. And so the Apocrypha got translated into Greek when the Hebrew Scriptures did. Okay, fast forward to the Roman Empire to a guy named Jerome. Jerome is one of the early church fathers, and he's super smart. And the Pope, 
the Pope's name at the time was Damasus, comes to Jerome and he says, you know, Jerome, we have a problem. We got these Hebrew scriptures and we got the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek and we've got a Greek New Testament, but it's 400 years in the future. Nobody speaks Greek anymore. What do they speak? Latin, Roman Empire. And the Pope says, we really need a Latin translation of the Bible. So he finds the smartest guy in the empire, Jerome, and he says, I want you to go back to the Hebrew, and I want you to go back to the Greek, and I want you to translate the scriptures into Latin. So Jerome says, great. So in a lot of the pictures of, the, of Jerome on the left, he's translating, right? He's working. He's got his desk out, and he's got his stylus, and he's thinking, how am I going to translate this word? That's what a lot of the art of Jerome looks like, because this is the big accomplishment of his life, is translating the Bible into Latin. So Jerome's translating the Bible into Latin, and... He wants to do the law and the prophets and the writings and the New Testament. And he starts working. And the Pope finds out that he's not doing the Apocrypha. And the Pope says, Jerome, you're doing the Apocrypha. And Jerome says, but it's not Scripture. But he's the Pope. What do you do when the Pope tells you to do something? in the year about 400. Yes, sir. So he translates the Apocrypha into Latin with these other books, and he makes it very clear at the time these books are not Scripture. It's sort of like a, you know, sometimes a prisoner gives like a secret signal on TV, like there's a distress signal, and they pull their earlobe or they do something, and they're saying all the things the hostage wants them to say, but they're giving you a tip off like, hey, They're making me do this. Jerome essentially did that. I'll do it because you're the Pope and I don't really have a choice. This is not scripture, but he puts it in there, okay? Fast forward a thousand years. Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. The Bible that Luther would have held in his hands, the Latin scriptures, had the Old Testament and the Apocrypha and the New Testament, Because Jerome put it all in there, and you understand why Jerome put it all in there. Luther says, this is no good. Nobody speaks Latin. We need this in German. So he says, we're going to translate the Old Testament, and we're going to translate the New Testament into German. So what's he going to do with the Apocrypha? What do you think he did? He translated it into German. You remember, these books were written between the Old and New. He translated it into German. He kept it in the volume, but he put it in the back as an appendix. And he said very clearly, this is not Scripture. Is not Scripture. So he translates everything into German, including the Apocrypha. He puts it at the end, and he says, this is not Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church gets mad, and they have a council. It's the Council of Trent. In 1546, this is one of the famous paintings of the Council of Trent. And at Trent, they're making all these decisions in response to Martin Luther and the Reformers and John Calvin and all the rest. And in the year 1546 at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church says the Apocrypha are deuterocanonical books. They belong in the canon. They're not quite as good as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deutero, second tier. 
but they do belong in the canon and they have full authority and they are scripture and they're pushing back against the reformers who basically took it out and said, no, it's not inspired scripture. So I just want you to get this timeline in your head. These books are written 400 BC up through the life of Jesus. For hundreds of years, nobody really thinks that they're scripture. The Jews in real time didn't think that they were scripture. The early Christians did not think they were scripture. The New Testament doesn't ever quote it or refer to it while it quotes the Old Testament thousands of times. Jerome puts it in the translation because the Pope told him to do it. Luther puts it in his German translation, but he puts it in an appendix at the end, and he says nobody really thinks this is scripture at all, and he moves it to the end. And then in the year 1546, 1600 years, 1800 years after these books were written, the Roman Catholic Church finally comes out and makes an official declaration these books actually belong in the Bible, okay? Let's talk about this. Uh, The Apocrypha is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It does not belong in the canon. That's the conclusion. You look at the history. You look at what was happening in real time amongst the Jewish people. You look at the development from Jerome to Luther to the Council of Trent. Uh, God's people have not ever viewed these books historically as scripture and it was a very late invention I know 1546 sounds like a long time ago to you that's a long time ago but it's really a long time from 1546 to 400 BC and no one in that window really seriously felt like these books were inspired scripture so it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit we could say more but we're going to move on. Let's talk about the New Testament. This is an interesting story. New Testament is made up of 27 books. These include, as we group them, Gospels, History, Epistles, and then what you might call Prophecy Apocalypse. I'm not going to read you the list. You know the list. You probably have it sitting right in front of you in your copy of the Scriptures. 27 books in the New Testament. Here's an important point. It's maybe the most important point in the whole debate about the canon. The early church never declared that these books were inspired scripture when you think about the New Testament. They did not declare that they were inspired scripture. They simply recognized that these books were inspired scripture. I know that sounds like playing with words and splitting hairs and not that big a difference, but it's really a world of difference. What I'm saying to you is the church, the early church did not come out and say, we declare that this is the canon, the Old Testament and the New Testament canon. We're making an official declaration that this is the list. What they did is they recognized these are the books that have been inspired by God and bear his authority. It is a really, really, really important distinction. This recognition, I want you to understand, this recognition happened quick, almost not almost, in complete real time. I just want you to see from within the New Testament itself, there's an understanding that the New Testament is Scripture. So take your Bible and let's look at a few verses. Look at John, Gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14, verse 25 and 26 These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 14, you should know this because we've just been working through it in church. Jesus is speaking to whom? The apostles. That's who's with him in the upper room. Not talking to a mass crowd of people. You understand this verse is not a promise for Ryan Stevens that if he doesn't study his Sunday school lesson this week, it's no biggie because the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what you need to say. Right? Not what Jesus is saying. It's not just a carte blanche, don't worry about it. Spirit's just going to make it all up for you on the fly. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles, one of whom is John, who wrote this gospel, saying, when the Spirit comes, one of the things that he's going to do is help you remember all the things that you need to remember. Thank goodness the Holy Spirit did that because in real time, the disciples were completely befuddled about what was going on. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to send the helper. He's going to help you remember all the things that you need to remember. That was a promise for the apostles. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. So there's this hope, Jesus speaks it, that the Spirit's going to help them. Look what Paul says. Paul's recognized as an apostle. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 36. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Remember, Paul's the one who took the word of God to Corinth. They didn't give the word of God to Paul. He took it to them. Or are you the only ones that it's reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet, and there was all sorts of confusion in Corinth about who was a prophet and who wasn't. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's a pretty bold statement. I am writing to you directly on behalf of the Lord, Almighty God. This is not just Paul writing to you. You think you're a prophet, you think you're spiritual, you think you want to say something that's going to trump me. Paul says, what I'm writing to you now, this book is a command from the Lord. There's a recognition in real time that what he's writing is God's word. It's not just something that somebody said, we think that's God's word. There's an understanding in the moment. This is the word of God. Look at 1 Timothy 5. This is a big one. 1 Timothy 5. Paul wrote this book. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, this is what I want you to see, the scripture says, and Paul gives you two quotes. Quote one, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle out an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. The law. The Ketavim. The Nevi'im, the Torah, right? It's from the Torah. Shall not muzzle out an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. Where do you find that in the Old Testament? You don't. You find it in the Gospel of Luke. It's the words of Jesus. And he lumps both of those quotes under the heading, the scriptures say this. What are the scriptures? Well, it includes the book of Deuteronomy, and apparently now it includes the Gospel of Luke. We're adding to what the scriptures are, and that's happening in real time. One more verse I want you to look at. I want you to just see that there's an understanding, even in the, the time of the apostles, 2 Peter 3, there's an understanding that the things that they're writing are scripture. 
2 Peter 3. Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. So this is Peter, and he says, hey, Paul wrote you some stuff. He wrote according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There's some things in them that are hard to understand. So if you think Paul's hard to understand, Peter agrees with you. I'm reading Paul's letters, and man, Romans 8 and 9 and 10 are really tough. That is hard stuff. Things in them that are hard to understand. He says, which, these hard things, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul's letters are scriptures. They twist them to their own destruction just like they do the other scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures, Gospel of Luke, all the other books that are being recognized as scriptures. Here's what you got to get in your brain when you think about the canon. When the Holy Spirit of God inspired these books, and we talked about inspiration weeks ago, in that moment, they were Scripture, right? Holy Spirit breathing these words out, Holy Spirit carrying these men along as they wrote. When they write the book, when it's down on paper, it is Scripture. They didn't have to wait for the church or some council to come along and say, now it's Scripture. We make a declaration that this is Scripture. It was Scripture. And the job of the church was recognizing this is Scripture. Not because we said so, but because God has spoken through these words. It wasn't a declaration. It was a recognition. Here's the standards. Okay, there's three standards. How did they recognize a book had been inspired? Number one, it had to be apostolic, meaning written by an apostle, or someone associated with an apostle. Had to be apostolic. Joe Blow off the street couldn't submit a book for the canon. No, you're not an apostle. You're not friends with an apostle. You didn't get your information from an apostle. Paul's letters, Paul's an apostle, it checks that box. Gospel of John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, written by John the apostle, checks that box. Gospel of Luke, not written by an apostle but written by somebody who traveled and was friends with the Apostle Paul, right? That's how it falls under that umbrella of being apostolic. The second standard was harmony, meaning that it fit with the rest of Scripture. If a book's floating around and it contradicts something that's already been recognized as Scripture, it's automatically out. If if a book comes along and says, there is not one God, there are actually two gods, Well, it's out. We don't care who wrote it. We don't care how great the rest of it is. If it contradicts the rest of the Bible, then that book is out. The third standard is acceptance, meaning did the churches generally accept it? That was one of the talking points, one of the criteria. Did the churches at large accept these books as they were being written and and circulated? I'm going to say this. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it. Maybe we can revisit it at some point. There's a second century heretic named Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He forced the church to recognize the New Testament canon and the issue was finally settled by Athanasius in 367 AD. Here's the deal. There's general understanding. Very early in the first century, or excuse me, late in the first century, early in the second century the late 80s, 90s, going into 
the 110s, 120s. There's a general understanding about the books that belong in the New Testament. In about 140, a guy named Marcion pipes up and he says, you know what? I don't like the Old Testament. I'm ripping it out. No more Old Testament. And I don't want anything to do with any book that quotes the Old Testament. So Matthew, out. John, out. Revelation, out. Anything that has a lot of Old Testament stuff in it, he ripped it out. Then he went to the Gospel of Luke and he said, some of this is okay. He ripped about half of it out and he kept some of Luke. He looked at Paul's letters and he said, I like 10 of them, but three of them are garbage. And Marcion spoke up and he said, this is the canon. Half of Luke and 10 of Paul's letters. That's it. And the church said, are you crazy? That's not what we think the scriptures are. And you say, well, why hadn't they decided that up to that point? It was because no one had stood up and acted like a clown. Okay? Let me give you a, a parallel. What did Martin Luther and John Calvin say about um, people changing their gender? Nothing. They didn't say anything about it. People weren't arguing about that in the 1500s. There was a little more sanity in the 1500s, but they didn't talk about it. Does that mean that they didn't have an opinion about it? No, that's how things happen in church history. Some bonehead pipes up and starts saying something that is clearly unbiblical and wrong, and the church says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're going to have to figure this out, right? That's what happened with the scriptures. Marcion pipes up, and he rips all the Bible apart, and the church begins this process. I wish I could tell you it was like, a one-year process, but there's no Zoom meetings, there's no text messaging, there's no automobiles, there's no trains, um, there's no internet, there's no email, uh, there's none of that. There's no printing press, right? For churches, individual churches, to get these New Testament documents, they had to be hand-copied and had to be hand-carried and they had to be read, and then the church had to think about it and pray about it and listen to it and ask the Spirit for wisdom. And then they had to travel to other towns and what books do you have? It took a while. Like it's the ancient world. And it took a while for these books to begin to circulate and begin to, to, to be sort of common in all the churches. And there's a letter written by Athanasius in 367. He lists our 27 books, no less, no more. There's a lot of other lists that get really close much earlier than Athanasius. Most of these books were really not all that debated, but Athanasius gets the list in about 367. Okay, why does this matter? Number one, there was no nefarious, here's your vocabulary word for the day, there's no nefarious process of determining which books would be included in the Bible, but there was a gradual process of recognizing which books were inspired scripture. So when you watch the History Channel or you read Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code or any of this stuff, you listen to the Jesus Seminar and they tell you that it was a big power grab and a political process and there was intrigue and people were buying people off and excluding books that should be in the Bible and you read all this nonsense, you just say, oh, it's crazy talk. It makes great fiction books. It gets eyeballs on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel for people watching documentaries. It's just not historical when you actually study the process of how all this came about. It's no nefarious process. Next, 
Catholics insist the church created the canon. Protestants insist the canon created the church. I think we need to remember this today. We, the church, don't get to decide on what the scriptures are. God gets to decide that. When he inspires books, they're inspired by God. They are authoritative. We've talked about the authority of scripture. The church doesn't get to come along and say, well, we don't like that book. We, wanna, we don't like that chapter. We don't like that verse. That's not our authority. We don't have that authority. The authority rests in the inspired text of scripture. Our job is simply to recognize it and submit to it, not to try to define it. And the Roman Catholic Church just openly says, no, the church creates the canon. The church decides what's in the Bible. And Luther and the Protestants said, no, 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 that's not how it works at all. We just recognize what has been inspired by God, and then we submit to its authority. Third, Christians can trust the providence of God in the process of defining the canon. God inspired these books, and we have the books that he wants us to have. You're not missing 3 Corinthians. 3 Corinthians is not the key to your spiritual life. There's nothing missing that you need. You have what you need. God's guided this process. Lastly, the canon of Scripture is closed. It's closed. Deuteronomy 4 says, don't add or take away from the Scriptures. You ever thought about the fact that they added to the Scriptures after Deuteronomy 4? Book of Revelation says essentially the same thing. Don't add or take away. And the point really in Deuteronomy and in Revelation, especially uh, Revelation is to say, is not your place to add to this book. That was the point in Deuteronomy. Don't just start tacking stuff on to what God has said. Don't play games with this definition of Scripture. God will speak when he's ready to speak. Maybe there's a 400 gap in the middle there where he doesn't want to say anything at all to his people. When he's ready to speak, he'll speak, and he's spoken to us. The canon is closed. I'm not going to find any more books that check those three boxes that are apostolic, that don't contradict Scripture, and that are accepted by the early church. That period of history is gone. So we have the books that we need, and we can be thankful for that.